chapter 20 through 22, really chapter 19, verse 11 through 22, are the triumphant part, you call it the happy part, of the book of Revelation. In this section, we have the final victory of Christ. We have the new heavens and the new earth. We have the revelation of Christ and the city of God coming down from heaven. The drama behind history, the truth behind history, is celebration. The victory of Christ will come over his adversaries. We rejoice over the downfall of the harlot and over the beasts because God is purging the universe and reestablishing his reign of peace. The final victory of Christ does lead to judgment over all the nations, and that is indeed where things start. I believe I have a chart in your notes. Do I have a chart called the chiastic structure Satan and his adversaries fall? Do I have that for you? Take a look at that. Page 82. Uh, chiastic structure is a, is a 1, 2, 3, 3, 2, 1, or A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A structure. And some people find them all over the place in the Bible, and other people get leery because they never seem to fit real... Per- they, they fit medium well. And I never like things that fit medium well. You know, I like things that fit well or don't fit at all. And chiasms are one or the other. Um, or, or neither one or the other. But this one works even better than medium well. And it goes like this. There is a chiasm describing all the figures that arise, all the characters that arise in chapters 12 through 20. 12, 12 1 begins with the woman the church in the context of creation. And the whole segment ends in chapter 21 and 22 with the new creation, the bride of Christ, coming down from heaven. And then the second thing we have in 12 is the dragon, Satan. And the last of those to fall in chapter 20 is the dragon cast into the lake of fire. The dragon, in chapter 13, brings up two allies, the sea beast and the earth beast. And just before Satan falls, they fall. The sea beast and the earth beast persecute the church, but the church still survives, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. And we have another vision of the church, the pure church, rejoicing in God's victory in chapter 19. And in between, in the middle, we have the rise, chapter 17, and the fall, chapters 18, the beginning of 19, of Babylon. So it goes A, B, C, D, E, E, D, C, B, A. The rise and the fall in inverse order. Why would that be there? Just maybe to have fun? Just to, you know, have some poetic structure there? I'm not sure. But it does seem to be that the point is that there's the church first and last. There's Satan next to first and next to last. And then his allies rise and fall in between. Chapter 19 describes the fall of Babylon and then more systematically the judgment of Christ upon the earth. And here, verse 11 to 21, he is described as the king, the warrior coming in his glory. When Jesus was on earth, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. But when he comes again, he will come on a a war horse, on a stallion. On a mighty steed. When he was on earth, he told his disciples to put away their swords. But on the last day, 
He will judge and wage war. And he will slay the nations with a rod, rather with a sword that comes out of his mouth. Description, chapter 19, shows that Jesus is right as judge, rightful judge. His eyes are like blazing fire. He sees what's happening. On his head are many crowns, not like the crowns of the dragon who imitates Christ, but Jesus really does have all authority and all power. And he has an excellent name, not like those blasphemous names we've heard about earlier. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the Word of God. And he brings armies behind him, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's the saints. We've already heard that in chapter 7. And out of his mouth, as I said, the sharp two-edged sword comes. Not because he literally slays the wicked, but because his word will be their undoing. As the song says, the hymn says, One little word will fell him. A mighty fortress is our God. That little phrase is taken, I believe, from this passage. The word of God. The word of God is the undoing. Because the word of God will judge. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords, coming in his wrath, treading the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. And as he metaphorically slays the nations... They are left unburied, and, and an invitation goes out to the birds of heaven to come and feast on the carrion from this great battle. This, this story, this picture of feasting on carrion seems very offensive to us, perhaps, but it's making a point. What did it mean to go to die unburied in antiquity? It meant to be disgraced, I hear several of you say it once. Who... Who died and buried in the pages of Scripture? Jezebel, yes. Who else died and buried? Yes. Saul, Jonathan, absolutely. It was a sign of the ignominy of his defeat. And the concept is there's no one even left to lament, to mourn, to... Honor your body. And the point is that all the evildoers are, over, are undone or overthrown. And so there's no evildoers left to lament the evildoers. There's no one left to keep their, quote-unquote, good name alive. There is no good name to keep alive. And so this, this image tells us of the death of evil. Chapter 20 begins... Uh, the description of one of the most vexing passages in the whole Bible. Now, if you thought the uh, number of the beast was hard, and maybe you were happy or unhappy that I dispatched it in about a minute, when I gave you the mark of the beast, you probably liked, I think you should like what I said about the mark of the beast, because I really think that's clear and, and right, it makes all kinds of sense, and everybody, everybody who studies it comes, should come to that conclusion. But I can't really say that about the millennium. In fact, what I really want to do with regard to the millennium today is, is lay out the options. And probably a lot of you are going to disagree with what I'm going to say, at least in part. And you know the code, if you disagree with it, and there's a test question, you know what the code is? The code is according to lecture. And if you get tired of that, just put ACL, and I'll know what it means. So I have to, if I ask you a question you don't agree with my answer... You still have to know what I said, right? You don't have to agree with it. And a little way of saying, I know what you said, and I think you're wrong, is according to lecture. 
But I'm going to try to be clear, try to tell you the options, try to explain mine, and, and then let you really think it through for yourself, okay? There are three ways to view the millennium. In chapter 20, it describes Satan being cast into the abyss for a thousand years. There are basically three ways to take this millennium. The three views are called pre-mill, post-mill, and amill. Pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and amillennialism. How many of you have heard all three terms? How many of you have never heard those terms? Okay, so we're in decent shape. How many of you know exactly what all three mean? Two people. Okay. Premillennialist. I'm going to give you a definition. I'll just tell you right now. I'm not a premillennialist. But what I did is, is I went to the premillennialist that I most admire, who wrote in the book of Revelation, and I've got his definition. So I'm being real fair because I got it right from a world-class premillennialist. And if anybody could persuade me, he's the one because he's brilliant, and his commentary on Revelation is my favorite. And he's wonderful. His name is Beasley Murray. That's all one last name, Beasley Murray. The premillennial view, here's what he says. The essential element in the idea of the millennium is the appearance of the kingdom of the Messiah in history prior to the revelation of the kingdom of God in the eternal and transcendental realm. There's an eternal kingdom, but before that, the Messiah's kingdom appears. This concept is that of a limited kingdom of the Messiah on the earthly scene. Beasley Murray says, This concept cannot be found in the Old Testament, but it does fulfill the hope of a messianic rule in the land of Israel. It never says in the Old Testament, in other words, Beasley Murray says, that there will be a Messiah ruling for a thousand years. But there are these passages in the Old Testament about an age when the Messiah rules and when God's justice fills the land. And some of that language is very, I'll keep on going here to show you, it's a, it's a plausible view, um, even though I don't finally agree with it. I understand it well and I'm attracted to it at times. You know those passages about everyone having their own vine and fig tree and nobody dying young, everybody lives to be 100 years old and the, and the uh, wolf lays down with the lamb. That's looking to an age of earthly bliss. And that's being fulfilled in the hope of a thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, some premillennials say that there will be a literal 1,000-year reign. It will be 1,000 years plus zero days. Others say, no, 1,000 is a symbol of a long period of time. It may last, indeed, several thousand years. Uh, We don't really need to worry about the length. Others say we do need to be concerned about the length. Here's some particular ideas. Again, this is Beasley Murray just summarizing his own views. Christ returns in power and glory to strip Satan of his power, the visible earthly reign. He will raise the Christians who have died. His coming is divided into two parts. He has a second coming with two phases. First phase, he comes in the air and raises... Christians who died. And they reign with him in spiritual bodies on the earth. Also, at that time, there are some unbelievers, not many, but some. And there are others who are Christians who didn't die. And so you have a kind of a mixing of ordinary people like you and me, who are Christians, walking around in ordinary bodies, and 
non-Christians in ordinary bodies and Christians in glorified bodies. After a thousand years, Satan will reemerge to do battle with God and his people briefly and be destroyed. And then comes the resurrection and the judgment of all, the end of the wicked, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Probably a lot of you believe that. Or maybe some of you think that's the only thing you ever heard. Postmillennialists believe, and you can get it if you just remember pre-mill, post-mill. Pre-millennialists believe Christ comes before the millennium. Post-millennialists believe Christ comes post the millennium, that is, after the millennium. Post-millennialists and amillennialists agree that they don't like the pre-millennialists move of dividing the one coming of Christ into two phases divided by a thousand years or more they say we've got one second coming and that's when he brings the last day the judgment day that's the testimony of Paul and of the gospels postmillennialist says that there is a millennium though him is a earthly reign of Christ of indefinite period very thousand years perhaps and that reign is brought about not by a sudden, cataclysmic, powerful, judging return of Christ, but by the pervasive influence of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. A favorite verse of theirs would be the, uh, the uh, parable of the leaven, or the yeast, and the parable of uh, the mustard seed. The kingdom quietly grows until it changes everything, so they say. And they believe then that there is this golden age, the vast majority of the human race is redeemed. And they would say that's why you have hell depicted as a lake of fire, but heaven is a city. Hell is just a little lake or a pit. But heaven is, is the whole universe. Because someday it will be true that the vast majority of mankind will be redeemed. And they'll quietly live out the prophecies of the Old Testament. There are certain things in that that appeal to me, too. That's why I can be so, have such equanimity toward these views and describe them fairly and not, not slander anybody. The amillennial view is that there is no literal millennium. The amillennialist believes that there's a millennium, there's a thousand years, but it's, it's not a golden age that everybody kind of notices. It is another way of describing the time, times, and half a time. It is the period from the binding of Satan until the return of Christ. Satan is bound, and a thousand years later, Christ comes back. Now, the Amalonilla says, in order to figure out what that thousand years is, let's not go to the Old Testament. Let's treat the book of Revelation here the way we treat it every other place. And that is, let's take this as a symbol. And let's ask what the symbol means. And we find out what the symbol means by looking at other parts of the Bible. So, the amillennialist says, Satan is bound. Well, when was Satan bound? Chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil. He bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss, locked him up, sealed it to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. Well, 
when do we have a statement telling us when Satan was bound in the Bible? That's the amillennialist question. It's my question. Because I'm always interested in finding out what the symbol refers to in plain prose. That's what we've been doing the whole time, you see. So I've been setting you up all these weeks. No, really, I'm, I've been consistent all these weeks, I hope. So I look and I see that Jesus says that he bound Satan. When he cast out demons, he says he bound the strong man. He says, here's how I cast out demons, because when a strong man sits in his own house, no one can take his possessions. But when somebody stronger comes along and binds him up, then he can plunder his possessions. And that's Jesus' explanation of how he casts out demons. So what he's saying is that he has bound Satan in his coming. Therefore, I take it that Satan is currently bound. We are in, therefore, the millennium now. In the sense that Satan is now bound. If that sounds odd to you, remember, my rationale is, Jesus said so. <laughs> All right, I admit that was maybe a little bit unfair, but it is what I believe. I mean, I admit this is difficult, but you have to go with what you believe and uh, declare what you believe. Okay, somebody may say, boy, if this is the binding of Satan, I'd hate to see him loosed because things look pretty good for Satan right now. But notice how the binding of Satan is explained. He's in the abyss. He's locked up. He's sealed to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And I believe that we're in that period. When Satan can no longer deceive the nations, when Christ came, the nations were almost unremittingly in darkness and deceit. The only nation in the world in which there was much light, and even there not very much, was Israel. But with the coming of Christ, the gospel has enlightened the world. Christ is the light that came into the world. The gospel is being proclaimed to all the nations, even to the end of the earth. Isn't that what we believe? And isn't it true that there are Christians in every nation in the world? I said earlier there was a little while when there weren't any in Albania, but they're back, you know. We're back. And, yeah, there may be a few tribal peoples, you know, isolated in islands, maybe in the South Seas and so on. But we're working on them, too. We know who they are. We've identified them. We're getting missionaries going there. And so the spreading of the gospel can't be stopped. Again, I told you about Mao Zedong. See, he can say there are 300,000 Christians and I'm going to kill them all. But he can't. After trying to kill them all for 40 years, there's 50 million. Well, that's a high estimate. At least 20 million. That's the government's own estimate. And, you know, they want to keep the numbers low. So the gospel is spreading. Those are the three options. How many of you grew up with and probably believe number one, premillennialism? Okay, how many of you postmillennialists? Not many. How many are millennialists? How many of you don't know? How many of you don't care? <laughs> Guilty laughter. Okay. Now there is one passage here that is that's really tough that we have to work at. And to do this, what I want to do is just remind you of the way we've been working. I have uh, the overhead going here a little bit. When you look at the book of Revelation, I got this from one of my professors. And uh, he said all kinds of useful things, so I like to give him honor. His name is Vern Poitras. 
So when you look at the book of Revelation, you have to realize it's operating in four ways at four levels at once. This is not in your notes. Just four, I just really have four words up there. Language. You're reading words. Language. You're reading words like, well, like chapter 19. Those who had been deluded by the mark of the beast were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Those are words. Now, the words describe a vision. John saw, to get away from the, the uh, millennium for a moment, just back to chapter 19, John saw, he saw with his own eyes, a vision. It appeared to his eyes, a rider on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. He saw that. He saw that sword slaying the nations, and he saw Satan and the beast being picked up and thrown into a lake of burning fire. And he saw that all the rest had been killed by that sword, and he saw in the vision the birds eating their flesh. That's what he saw. The words describe what he saw. But now, the vision refers to something. We don't, we don't I don't think, literally expect on the last day, one gigantic sword to come out of Jesus' mouth and chop off everybody on earth who was an unbeliever and the birds to come and eat it. I don't think we really expect it to literally happen. It refers, it's a symbol of something else. And that is God spiritually slaying and the shame on unbelievers, right? And then the reference, and of course, this, sorry, I messed that up a little bit. I got to the symbol. The reference is to the last day, and the symbol is explained the way I just explained it. Okay? Now, we, we've been doing that all along. When we get to the millennium, we've got to do it again. Does that make sense? You realize we've been doing that all along? We've been looking at words that point to a vision, that have a reference to some event, like here, the last day, and then you try to figure out what it all refers to. It refers to judgment and shame and so on. You're all waiting for the other shoe to drop, which is good, but just want to take our time and make sure we understand this. Now, what we have to do is look next, then, at maybe one of the hardest parts about the um, verses 4 to 6 about the millennium and see how uh, we can make some sense of that. Uh, first of all, it's clear enough that we have here another vision. It says in chapter 20, verse 1, and I saw. So this is what John saw. He's using words to describe it. Now, what did he see? Well, he saw Satan bound. He also saw thrones. I'm in verse 4 now. He saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. And because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, this is the passage that premillennialists say, okay, this is my passage. Resurrection for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, there are two views of this I want to talk about. The premillennialist says, you see here, this is my passage, which says Christ is going to come and the dead are going to rise, they're going to come to life again, and they're going to reign with him for a thousand years, those who died, those who were martyred. 
But I don't believe in a literal thousand years. I'm explaining to you why. I take it this way. John is using these words to describe a vision. In the vision, what he saw with his eyes was believers coming to life. But that doesn't mean that that's the reference, right? We just separated out the vision, like a sword coming out of a mouth, doesn't mean a literal sword. It refers to judgment. So John saw people literally coming to life, but that doesn't mean that everybody literally came to life. It may be a symbol of something. Well, what would, be, what would it be a symbol of? It is a symbol of, and here's the trickiest part, I'll just tell you right now. It is a symbol of spiritual resurrection. It's a symbol of people coming to life spiritually. During the thousand years, people are coming to life in a spiritual way. The reference to a first resurrection and a second resurrection and a first death and a second death is to be understood as... I'm going to put this up here for a second. First and second in the book of Revelation does not always mean one and another just like it. Like a series of, of, you know, like I saw three baseball games. I went to three baseball games or three soccer games, you know, in which such and such team played such a team during the playoffs or during some league or something like that. First and second does not usually mean something like that, a series like that. More often in Revelation, it means two very different things. Like the first death in this very passage right here. The first death and the second death are very different from each other. The first death is a physical death. The second death is a spiritual death. Everybody dies once. Blessed are those who don't partake in the second death, which is real different. So likewise, there is a first resurrection and a second resurrection. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. That's going on during the thousand years. People are coming to life spiritually as the gospel goes forth, as Satan is bound, and he doesn't deceive the nations. Then comes a second resurrection, which is the eternal resurrection. The resurrection of God's saints. The old order then passes away. Even as Revelation 21 talks about the first heaven and the earth, first earth, which is ours right now, even though we like it here at seminary, and St. Louis is a good place to live, and we're glad to be Americans, and we shouldn't complain because we live in a country in a time of prosperity. Nonetheless, it's not much compared to the second heaven and the second earth. That's real different, no matter how good you have it in this life. So first and second means two of two different kinds. And that's my view of the millennium, and you've also heard the other views. After the end of the millennium, or near the end of the millennium, Satan is released, deceives the nations, he brings one great final rebellion against God, as various people have explained it, to make us ready, shall we say, and ripe to agree with God that the time has come for the end of evil doing. To make it clear what evil is and how desperately we need eternity. And then, indeed, the final punishment of Satan is described one more time as he's thrown into the lake of burning fire. And the dead are judged. 11, 20, chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, describes the judgment on the world one more time. The world and history come to an end. The dead are judged according to their works. You all know why. 
Because the works are visible and undeniable. The works reveal what's in somebody's heart. And so people are judged according to their works. And those who are vindicated are those whose names are written, still in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, whose names are written in the book of life. Their deeds count. Their good deeds count. They're not forgotten. Now, all those whose names are written in the book will be delivered. The book of life described a number of times in Scripture, suggesting our names are written, that is to say God knows us. Back to the naming. He knows our names. He's put His name on us. Our names are precious to Him. He's written them down. He's going to preserve us until that judgment day. When our names will be found there, when we'll when we will come to the second resurrection because we had the first resurrection, spiritual resurrection, because we resisted Satan and his allies. Well, there's lots, you know, you could all probably disagree with me on various points about the millennium. But you know what? I just want to be agreeable tonight. And so I'll entertain a question or two, but I won't get caught up in a big debate. Because if somebody says, well, I would pre-millennial is because of this, I'm probably going to say, I see your point. I understand that because I do. I understand it. It's possible to have uh, to hold. There's biblical data for all three views. I'll tell you one little thing, though. I'll tell you one little thing. Post millennialism appeals to me, but I can't quite buy it for one reason, and that is that as I read the Bible, there is always the possibility of the return of Christ at any time, coming like a thief in the night. Be ready because you don't know the hour. That command, be ready because you don't know the hour, seems to indicate that we should be ready at every hour. And post-millennialism doesn't really leave room for that, I don't believe. Post-millennialism says you've got to have this period in which the vast majority are redeemed, and, and we're not there. So to be ready every hour is, is deprived of its force. Now, somebody who's very clever and I know there are clever people in this room, may say, but Dr. Doriani, you said there has to be a final rebellion of evil, and you're waiting for the final rebellion of Satan. And so you too are saying it's not imminent. Is anybody thinking that? Anybody clever enough to think that that fast? You would have thought of it in a minute or two if I'd given you a chance. Um, and my answer to that is, it is entirely possible that because of the frog in the kettle syndrome, that it will be the great rebellion and people won't notice it. I think the case could be made that we're in the last days right now. Uh, you may, not, not because, you know, not because I believe in, you know, multiplication of earthquakes. That's not what I'm thinking of. What I'm, you know, those sorts of things that people look for. What I'm thinking of is more this. Has there ever been a worse century than the 20th? Just wrapping up, you know? How many millions of people? Pol Pot killed a quarter of the people in his own country. He killed every person who had glasses because it signified they were educated. And he wanted to wipe out all educated people in Cambodia in the 70s. Joseph Stalin starved to death at least 20 million people in his own country. Hitler killed 6 million Jews and 7 million gypsies and people with defective bodies, people who were mentally ill. 13 million. And we could think of Rwanda. We could think of Bosnia. We could also think about 35 million, 38 million in America. But you know, it's worse elsewhere. In China and Russia, it's worse. It's worse. 
Most pregnancies in Russia end in abortion. Most. Majority. And, and maybe in China, they don't keep, they don't publish the way they do in Russia. But maybe most in China. And, and you know, if you look at the things people call entertaining nowadays, couldn't you make the case that, that there's hardly been a generation that's worse than ours? I don't know that it is. But I think it's entirely possible that it's hidden to us and we're actually there. I think that in every generation there have been people who said our generation is as is, is evil as could be. And, you know, it's obviously not true that every generation is the worst. But those who have a yearning for holiness see how far for, short their generation falls. And then those who don't care, those who dwell on the earth and see only what's around them and say, well, you know, it's no different. You know, things come and go. Don't get too excited. Don't be fanatical. You know, we're just living and letting live. They don't see anything wrong with any generation. So, you know, God's view of the matter can be very deeply hidden from us. We don't know so very much to know when Christ is going to come. But let me, uh, let me talk about heaven and eternity with you a little bit. Chapter 21 and 22. Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, is a better term for it. The new Jerusalem the new city, is described for us here in, in uh, marvelous language. A description of a city whose measuring rod is 12,000 stadia. It's pretty big. Walls 144 cubits thick. That's about 200 feet thick. Foundations are every precious stone. God is there. How can we think about eternity and the descriptions to be found here? One way is to think about all the things that we have in this life that are gone. Did we do this for a minute? Did we talk about the occupations that won't exist in eternity? You want to play that game with me a little bit? What occupations will there no longer be? Okay, no more doctors. No more lawyers. Okay, okay, good. No more law, No more morticians. See, I knew somebody was going to say that. No more policemen. Now, I want to think about this just for a minute. We have to pause for a moment. No more policemen. Why? Because no more crime, right? Of course, policemen don't just stop crime. They also direct traffic sometimes. There might be a need for a traffic director in heaven. You don't think? There's a presupposition in that. Presupposition is no cars. No? All right, let me keep on going here. Let me keep on going. Some other occupations. Doctor, lawyer, mortician, politician. Okay, insurance. That's good. No more insurance agents. How about psychiatrists, social workers, uh, missionaries. That's a good one. And uh, let's see. Oh, we got, what was another one somebody mentioned I don't want to miss? Um, tax collectors. Very good. No more IRS. Uh, what else is going to be gone? Politicians? Housewives? I don't even want to, I don't even want to talk about that. No matter, no matter what you say, you're in trouble. That's a, that's a good little list. That's a good little list. Occupations. Will there be, do you think there might be carpenters in heaven? Engineers? Could there be carpenters? I hope, you know, maybe it could be. 
new heavens, new earth, you might want to... You think there'll be teachers in heaven? I think it's a good chance. I mean, I, I, I've always wanted to learn how to play the oboe. But I, there, I'm going to tell you, there is no time. I'm not going to have time. I'm going to die before I have time. So I hope there's oboes in heaven. I really do. I think they sound great. And I've heard it takes a long time to learn how to play the oboe. You think there'll be chefs in heaven? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Emphatic. No dietitians, though. No. Nothing low fat. Okay. Uh, what are we doing here? What is this exercise all about? Why, am, why are we playing this game? We're thinking about what heaven would be like. What's. We're thinking, well, bliss. We're also thinking about the bodily side. I'll never forget when I was. I'd only been a Christian a couple of years, and I had a professor who said, now, you know, there may be technological innovation in heaven. This blew my mind. I thought, wow. That seems so strange. But I think it could be true. People might have a great time, you know. People are going to play the oboe. Maybe somebody will want to record some of these oboe sessions and violin sessions and play them back with perfect reproduction for some reason. Maybe somebody will get the perfect stereo system. You know, it's possible, isn't it? Uh, what we're thinking about here is, is the idea that we'll never be perfect in the sense that God is perfect. We'll never be infinite. We'll be growing. We'll be learning more things. Only God is omniscient. We'll know more and more, but we'll never be omniscient, right? And that there'll be all kinds of joys in God. I suppose there'll be choir directors. Or maybe we won't need one. Maybe we'll all be just so good at it. Praising God. Somebody, nobody said ministers. We would need, maybe, or we could use worship leaders, couldn't we? And we could even think that we might get better and better. Not that we're bad at it ever, but more and more great songs and wonderful arrangements of those songs. Just on and on, just getting better and better, grander and fuller and fuller. What we're doing here, what I'm doing here, is actually exercising a theological method with you. It's a method of thinking about eternity that I'm using. <clears throat> and that is, it's called the, the way of eminence and the way of negation. <clears throat> the way of negation is to say, we can't, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. Paul's not really talking about heaven when he says that, but it works. Uh, what The things that God has prepared for us, actually he's talking about the blessings that God has for us now. Um, but it applies, it, it could work for heaven, taking it out of context just a little bit. The way of negation is to say, think of everything that's evil, it's gone. List them all. List all the jobs that are negative. You know, we could add trash collectors and, you know, all kinds of things. They're gone. Tears are gone. That's what he says here. Darkness is gone. Death is gone. Everything negative is negated. The way of negation. No more sinners. Nothing impure. No more night. No more curse. The way of eminence is to say, think of all that is good in this life. Everything that's good is imperfect. If nothing else, it's imperfect because it doesn't last. Take everything that's good, it'll be more so. Talk about wealth. Well, here's a city built with jewels and gold. Talk about 
songs. There's people learning new songs and singing praises to the Lamb and to God. Think about food. Hey, heaven begins with a wedding feast of the Lamb. But wait, that's not all. The way of negation says there's hunger in this world, but hunger will be done away. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6, the belly will be done away. But it says in, Re in Revelation 21-22 that we'll have the wedding feast of the Lamb. Wait a minute. How can we have a feast without a belly? Well, because the belly is used in the Bible of human appetites, yearnings, desires, sometimes irrational desires, sometimes unsatisfied desires. No more unsatisfied, irrational, corrupt desires. So, no food, no belly for food used that way. But food also means celebration. It means eating with your friends. It means laughing and talking and sharing your lives and building fellowship and giving thanks. In that sense, yeah, there'll be food. The way of eminence. That's the way that the Bible describes the new heavens and the new earth. It is an embodied life. Maybe the main mark of it, though, is the presence of God. Chapter 21, verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 22, verse 3 says the same thing. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There's that theme again. The presence of God. Isn't that maybe even almost the essence of what it means to be a believer? Adam and Eve, wasn't that the goal in the beginning? That Adam and Eve should enjoy God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And then after sin, that was lost. That perfect fellowship was lost. They were cast out of the Garden. But God walked and talked to some of the patriarchs. But that was one-on-one -on -one with just a few and episodic. And then God gave the people, the tabernacle, with the glory cloud and the presence. But even that was limited because only the priests could go in. and It was kind of frightening to the people. And then they built a temple in which you could get closer and be instructed. But still, that was limiting. And then Christ came. He tabernacled among us. That was the presence of God, not in a cloud, not in a tent, but right there. But, of course, Jesus was only in one place at one time, and he only lived 30-some years. So then we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in and among the Christian. And well, that's a good and a wonderful thing that's still not palpable. It's still hidden. It's still secret. And we can still grieve the Spirit. So we're looking for the day when the presence of God will be with man perfectly. And there'll be perfect glory. In that day, back to technology, there'll be room for praising God, but there'll also be and expansiveness. And that's why we read that the kings will come in with their glory. Now, by kings, I don't think strictly of those who actually are monarchs. We're back to the idea that we're all a priest of priest, you know, we're kingly priests in a, in, a, in a kingly race, which we've talked about a couple times in the course. That is to say, whatever you reign in, whatever glory you had that was dedicated to God and didn't have to be cast in the lake of fire, Whatever glory there was in mankind, there's room for that. God's not jealous. The kings and their glory will come in. It's hard to describe heaven. It's hard. I say this in the course on 
of the life of Christ. But if you don't mind, I'll say it again. Hard to think about it. These paradoxes. The stomach will be done away, but there's the feast of the Lamb. There's no more toil. On the other hand, Jesus says that those who are faithful in many things will be put over five cities. I don't know about you, but governing five cities sounds like work to me. So no toil, but work. Work in its fulfillment, but not being worn out and frustrated. Hard to think about it. One of my, another of my professors told me this story about heaven. He said there was a boy whom he knew, true story, not a made-up story, who at the age of four asked his mother, Mommy, will there be pears in heaven? Because the little boy loved pears. And the wise mother said, Honey, if you want pears, there will be pears. Which is the same answer as the question, Will there be volleyball in heaven? Will there be you name it in heaven? You know, If you'll want it, it'll be there. Why? Because your desires will be pure too. There will be nothing that you want that won't be there because you won't be capable of wanting anything evil. That's the goodness of it. And that's why it's hard to, hard to discern. Because even our aspirations, even our better aspirations are often somewhat polluted, aren't they? 